Hanging Rock has been one of our global impact partners for a number of years. And uh, um, here at the end of our worship experience, Gary, the director at Hanging Rock, will be sharing a few more words. Uh, camp registration is going to be opening up. Um, they continue to impact lives over uh, their storied history. Uh, I have a connection with Hanging Rock going back to being the first camp that I participated in years ago when I was living in Danville, Illinois. That's where we went. And then I was a youth minister in St. Joseph, Illinois, and that's where we took students. And so uh, I've known about Hanging Rock a long time. Many of your lives have been impacted by Hanging Rock. And so um, look forward to hearing more from Gary here later on. Uh, and just a word of advice, uh, camp registration starts, I think it's March 1st just in a few days, um, and there's a booth uh, down this hallway through the glass corridor, uh, and you can, you can learn more about Hanging Rock even down there uh, in between our services or after our services if you'd like to do that. But we're going to continue uh, our look at Pursue One Another. Uh, it's the second component in our strategic plan. Uh, we want to be a church that more intentionally pursues Jesus pursues one another and pursues our purpose. And we're working over the next three years, this just launched in January, on how to do that. In the first three months of the year, we're just kind of giving the, the foundation, the, the biblical foundation, the theology behind it, the understanding behind it that comes from God's word, why this is important for us. In the first couple weeks of our Pursue One Another series, we've seen the importance of relationships within uh, the community of faith among followers of Jesus, what it should look like to connect with other Christians, how we're to act towards one another. We've seen examples from the book of Acts. We've looked at the words uh, that Paul and others have written that specifically tell us to treat one another in these specific ways. There, there should be a level of relationship, a type of relationship, a type of community among followers of Jesus uh, that is different and that is contagious and that is captivating, that values one another and helps one another become more and more the people that God wants us to be. And that's what we focused on the first two weeks. Well, we're transitioning today to look at people outside of the community of faith. When we look at pursuing one another as a church, it is pursuing one another within the community of faith among other followers of Jesus and disciples. But how do we engage those who are not yet followers of Jesus? The bulk of your and my interactions in this world happen with people who are not yet followers of Jesus. Uh, maybe they're your family members, uh, they might be your coworkers, uh, they're probably neighbors, uh, they're the kids you're wrestling against and playing basketball against, uh, the young people you're doing ballet lessons with. The, the, the bulk of our interactions come with people who are not yet followers of Jesus. Um, Here's the reality, our world is full of people and most of them are nothing like you. That may seem offensive, but it's just a statement of fact. There are studies that go back to 2017. Uh, Natasha Crane in her book, Faithfully Different, looks at these research studies being in 2017 from places like Pew Research, Barna Research, uh, the American um, Worldview Inventory, and charts results from 2017 to 2020 that show that somewhere between 6% and 29% of Americans still cling to an historical, a historical, traditional, biblical worldview. What they mean by that is that someone who looks to God's word and says, this is the authority, what it teaches me about who God is and how to live life, I'm gonna live my life under it. I'm going to obey these words. I find my life in Jesus Christ and these words guide me into that life and into him. That 6% to 29% of Americans believe that. What's interesting is that in 2017, the Pew Research study gives us the 
The American worldview inventory gives us the 6% in 2020. Somewhere between 6% and 29%. That means at the very most, 71% of your fellow Americans believe and adhere to a traditional, historical, biblical worldview. At the very least, 94% of Americans hold to and believe in a traditional, biblical, historical worldview. That means that most of the world, if you hold to a biblical worldview, is not like you. So how do we pursue, how do we engage in relationships with those who are not like us? with those who are not yet followers of Jesus, with those who have not yet discovered the hope and the power and the meaning of life in him? What does it look like to pursue the not yet? Do we even understand that God has a heart for the not yet? And before we look to scripture and we discover what it has to tell us about God's heart for the not yet and how we can begin building bridges to the not yet, I just think it's wise to do a, just a brief inventory of our own hearts. How do you view, how do you understand, what do you think about, what do you feel when you consider those who are not yet followers of Jesus? What do you think, what do you feel when you think about those who disagree with you when it comes to matters of faith, when it comes to those who maybe openly resist or reject what we believe? How do you feel? How do you think about those who would look to God's word and say, no, this is, this is not a, a book to guide us for life. Um, it's got some great teachings in it, but it's not really an authority. How do you feel? How do you view um, the people who are not yet there, who don't yet feel that way? Are you filled with sadness? Are you filled with anger? Are you filled with compassion? Are you filled with a mix of those emotions? How do you feel about those who have not openly rejected or resisted Jesus, but maybe who have never heard about Jesus? How do you feel about them? How do you think about them? Just some quick research, I discovered that they estimate the population in the world to be 8 billion people. Do you know that research shows that close to 3.2 billion of the 8 billion people in the world have never even heard about Jesus? 40% of the world's population has never even had the opportunity to hear about the God we love and worship and we sing to this morning. How do you feel about that? Again, does it fill you with sorrow, with anger, with compassion? And we know that as a great majority of people are, are immigrating to different countries that we have more and more people living, even in the United States of America, who are among those unreached people groups. Those 3.2 billion people are among 7,000 plus unreached people groups. And some of them are now living in our cities. What does that do to your heart? What do you think? What do you feel about those who have not yet come to understand the hope that you have, the hope that I have, the hope that we share in Jesus? Do we understand even that God has a heart for the not yet? How do we pursue the not yet? And that's when we just wanna take a tour. We're gonna, we're gonna hang out mostly in Acts again today. We could turn a number of places in scripture and see God's heart for the not yet and instructions on maybe how to impact not yet in our lives. Uh, I even think about going back to the very beginning uh, to the life of Abram. 
When Abram is called from Ur of the Chaldeans, he's told that all peoples of the world will be blessed through him and his offspring. God's plan from the very beginning was to reach all people. He cares about the not yet. But because we're studying Acts, we'll primarily be in Acts, we'll bridge out to some of the words of Jesus and even some of the words of his disciples. We're going to start in Acts chapter 1. We'll be in three primary places this morning. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapters 10 and 11, and Acts chapter 26. And don't worry, I'll give you clues as we move through those passages. Acts chapter 1, Jesus is giving um, kind of this farewell discourse to his disciples uh, right before he ascends into heaven. In the midst of the conversation, the disciples are asking him questions. The, the final question they ask him is, is now the time, Jesus, when the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel? Uh, in verse 7, Jesus says, hey, it's not for you to know the time, uh, but here's what you can know. And he shares with them these powerful words, these words that to many who have been in the church a long time are well known. He says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, this is verse 9, it won't be on the screen for you. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. So the final words of Jesus on earth are, um, you want to know when the kingdom is coming? Guess what? You don't get to know that. Here's what you get to know is that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus' final instructions to his disciples are, I'm going to give you my power so that you can be my witnesses. What is a witness? Uh, we said this way back on September 11th when we launched into our series on the book of Acts. A witness is someone who tells what they've seen and what they've heard. A witness shares about what they have experienced. Jesus says, you're going to receive my power. My spirit's going to reside in you so that you can go and tell other people what you have experienced in me, from me. Tell people what you have seen and what you have heard. And where are those people at that they're going to tell? In Jerusalem, where they're at in that moment. That includes religious leaders that have rejected Jesus. That includes other people who have yet to fully understand who Jesus is. You're going to tell that in Judea, in all of Samaria. You're going to go beyond, into the regions, even places that you have not wanted to go. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. You're going to go to all people. It's showing us that God has this heart. Jesus has this heart that all people could come to know who he is. He wants the not yet to know him. And so those that do know him are charged with going out and sharing that with a world in need. God has a heart for the not yet. And none of these words of Jesus should surprise us. Jesus has already shared with us. They wouldn't have surprised his disciples because he already shared with them. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. Go into all the world. Go to everybody. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. I want the not yet to know me. Matthew 24, 14. Jesus says, until the gospel is preached in the whole world, some versions say every nation, the word there is a word that we get our word ethnicity from, until the gospel is preached to every ethnicity in the corners of the earth, that's when the end will come. Jesus has this heart for us to reach, for his word, for his good news to reach the not yet. And it shouldn't surprise us that this rubbed off on his closest followers. Think about those three men that hung out with him the most. John, James, and Peter. What does John write to us in John chapter 3 as he records the life of Jesus? Those famous words, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son 
that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. God cares about the not yet. What, what about Peter? Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, that God is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is, God is not slow. God has not, you know, stalled his return in a way that we would understand slowness, but God is being patient. He is waiting because he doesn't want people to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Well, who are the agents that get to share him with others so that they come to repentance? Those that already know him. God has a heart for the not yet. It's clear, it's abundantly clear from the beginning of scripture to the end. It's abundantly clear in the book of Acts. The theme of the disciples continuing his work shows up on page after page after page after page. Jews and Gentiles, those who worship false gods, those who are living for the pleasures and the priorities of the world rather than the pleasures and the priorities of God. And he says, you are called to go and to reach them. It's God's heart for the not yet. So we see it in God. Do we see it in ourselves? Do you have a heart for the not yet? think back to those questions that I posed at the very beginning. How do you think? How do you feel about those, who are, about those who are not yet following him? Even those who are resistant to him, who have rejected him. Even if it bothers you, even if there's frustration, even if there's, there's anger that people would resist the God who you know loves you and loves them, are you at least moved to compassion to say, I so desperately want them to experience him? Do you have his heart for the not yet? How do we gain that heart for the not yet? And that's where I want to turn to a few other passages in Acts to help us. We could turn to a number of them, but I'm going to focus primarily on this event in Acts 10 and 11, and then also in Acts 26. I would encourage you uh, to go back and reread the full accounts because we don't have time to, to read the account in its entirety this morning. But what begins to unfold at the beginning of Acts chapter 10 is that we learn about a man named Cornelius. We're told he's a Roman centurion. Uh, he's a devout, God-fearing man. We learn that he's praying at three o'clock in the afternoon. And as he's praying, he has a vision. And in that vision, he's told to go and send some men to a city. The city is called Joppa. It's some 35 miles away. And he's instructed to send men to go and get a man named Simon, also called Peter, who is staying at a house there, and to bring him back to Caesarea. So, so Cornelius has this vision. He, he comes out of the vision. He wakes up, and he makes plans to send the contingent to fetch Peter. As Acts chapter 10 continues on, uh, we're told that the next day, Peter has a vision. Uh, we're told some interesting details. Peter is hungry. He's on the rooftop of a man named Simon the Tanner's house. It's probably dangerous to be praying while you're hungry. Uh, Peter has this vision as he's hungry of a sheet descending from the heavens. And on that sheet, it seems like a very peculiar and weird vision. Uh, this, the sheet has animals with four legs on it. Among them are reptiles. And, and Peter is charged by a voice in this vision to get up and to kill something from that sheet and to eat it. Now, for Peter, who's grown up in a Jewish home, uh, you can't eat things that have been defiled or are unclean. And by the very mention of reptiles being on this sheet, if you go back to the law of Moses, uh, that would have meant that these unclean reptiles contaminated everything else on that sheet. 
So Peter refuses. He says, I can't eat from this sheet. And the voice says, don't call anything unclean that God has made clean. And then we see three times in total this vision happens. The sheet descends. There's animals. Get up, kill, eat, Peter. No, I can't. And Peter's told, don't call anything unclean that God has called clean. Three times that happens. Then the vision is over. Peter comes out of it. And who's at the gate of the place where he's staying? The men from Cornelius. So they come in, they tell him that, that the Cornelius wants him to come back to Caesarea. He has some questions for him. And the next day they depart. And then this is what happens uh, when he gets to Caesarea. We'll begin in verse 24 and go to verse 36 of chapter 10. He says, the following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Let's pause for just a moment, because Peter references this. He says, there's a law that says a Jew can't associate with a Gentile. What's interesting is, in my research, and the commentaries I read, no one can find a specific law that says a Jew can't be with a Gentile. What you can find are laws that suggest that you shouldn't eat with them, you shouldn't recreate. And so by its very nature, Jews said, well, just keep, keep your distance. Uh, don't go near. It kind of became taboo. It became offensive. They kind of erected this wall. Don't, don't hang out. Don't socialize. Don't be around Gentiles. And so Peter is saying, listen, you know this is the way I've been raised. This is who I am. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be talking to you. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. When he asks Cornelius, why did you send for me? Here's Cornelius' response, verse 30. Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. What we know about Cornelius at this point is that he is a devout and God-fearing man. What will become apparent in Peter's discourse with him is that he doesn't yet fully understand who Jesus is. His understanding of eternal life and the ways of God are incomplete. As a Gentile, he's been somewhat cut off from hearing this good news, and now he's counting on Peter to cross that barrier and help him go from being a not yet to one of Jesus' followers. It says, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true, this is verse 34. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. He'll go on in verses 36 and following to share with them about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit. You get to the end of chapter 10 and Cornelius and his household receive the Spirit of God. They're baptized into Christ. You move into chapter 11, and some people show up, and they're like, whoa, 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 what's the deal? Why are there Gentiles among our number? And so Peter recounts for them the vision that he had and what God has said about not calling anything unclean that he has made clean. 
And it says in verse 18 of chapter 11, when they heard this, these are the people opposed, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I share this story because it demonstrates Peter doing the very thing that Jesus sent him out to do in Acts chapter one, verse eight, to be his witness, to share what he had seen and what he had heard, to to reach the not yet who didn't understand who God was. But I share also for you to see that Peter had to overcome some barriers. One of the barriers was that he had been raised. Jews don't associate with, 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 with the Gentiles. And he had to be willing to overcome that barrier to risk being offensive even to his own people to be able to help the not yet of Cornelius' household meet and discover and understand who God was. If you and I are going to have God's heart for the not yet and reach the not yet in our world, we have to be prepared to overcome barriers that stand between us and them. And the barriers range. They, they range in their severity and how difficult they are to overcome. And one of the barriers that's pretty easy to overcome is the barrier of, of, our, of our generations. If we're gonna reach the not yet, we have to begin to be people who don't view those that have come before us as being obsolete and unimportant, nor those that have come after us as being insignificant. We need to be a community of people who, who looks to Gen Z and millennials and Gen X and builders and boomers as, as all people that are made in form of the image of God and being willing to cross those generational lines and, and become uncomfortable. Maybe if you're a, a builder or a boomer or a Gen Xer, being immersing yourself more and understanding the technology and, and listening better to uh, Gen Y and Gen Z and now Gen Alpha. And, and maybe if you're part of Gen Z and Gen Y, you have to listen more to your Gen X and your, your boomers and and your builders, but if we want to overcome barriers to help people experience the good news and the life of Jesus and who he is and what it means for them. But those are the easier barriers. There are harder barriers. What about people that believe differently than you? What about people that hold a different worldview than you? What about people that don't adhere to a traditional, historical, biblical worldview? Do you understand that shapes so much of what they believe about life, their preferences, their approved choices of how they live, from how they spend their money and what they do with their bodies to what they feel about human sexuality? Like, are we willing to be people who don't compromise our own beliefs, our own biblical worldview, but build bridges to those who don't yet hold that worldview? to impact them for Jesus? Are we willing to cross racial and ethnic lines to help people experience him? Are we willing even to build bridges to people who live lives that we would consider sinful to help them encounter him? And again, all this can be done without compromising our own faith. I'm not asking you to abandon your convictions about Jesus, your convictions about sin, your convictions about truth, your convictions about a historical, biblical, sexual ethic. I'm not asking you to abandon any of that, but we can hold on to those things and build bridges to reach those who don't yet hold those views. But we model what we see in Peter's life and be willing to move beyond those barriers because we care about the not yet like God cares about the not yet. And even as I ask that, I wonder who is it in my life that I've been running from, who I've been avoiding, who I've been unwilling to make the investment in because they believe differently than me, they hold a different political position than me, because they understand sexual identity differently than me, Am I willing, without compromising what God has to say, move towards them to build a bridge 
to help them encounter him so that they can have the good news of Jesus proclaimed to them? Will we move towards the not yet? Will we overcome barriers in pursuit of the not yet? In order to overcome those barriers, though, there's one more thing we have to understand, and that's the urgency that faces the not yet. And for that, I want to go to Acts chapter 26. In Acts chapter 26, uh, Paul is on trial. He's kind of being brought before um, governing leader after governing leader. And in Acts chapter 26, he's been called before King Agrippa. In part of his defense to King Agrippa, he recounts for him the the encounter he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus. We'll look more in depth at the encounter that Paul had, then Saul, on the road to Damascus the week after Easter. But for our purposes this morning, I just want you to see clearly the instructions that Jesus gave to Paul on that road. Um, More than any other time when Paul recounts Jesus' instructions, he gives us more detail here in Acts 26 than he does in the other places. Here's what he says in Acts 26, verse 16, what Jesus said to him. Jesus told him, now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness, there's that word again, and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Paul, I have have charged you with being a witness. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. And listen to this commission. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He tells Paul, here's why I'm sending you. Because there are people who are living in darkness, people who don't yet have the light of Christ, People who are living under the power of Satan. And I want them to come to the light. I want them to come to know the power of God. I want them to come to know me so they can have a place among those who are sanctified by me. And that inevitably means that if they don't come to me, they won't have that place. And I go back to the words of 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not slow as we understand slowness. But instead he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. By very nature, those words imply that there will be some who perish if they don't come to repentance. And so there's a world out there. There's an America out there, perhaps as small as 71%, which is still a pretty large number, perhaps as great as 94%, who are not yet following Jesus, who don't yet know him. And they will perish. They're living in darkness. They're living under the power of Satan apart from him. Who's going to share with them? And that's when God says, you, you will be my witness. You will tell people what you have seen and what you've heard. I have placed you in your family. I have placed you in your place of work. I have placed you in your community. I have placed you on that ball team. I have placed you in that school. I have placed you in this world to make a difference for me, so do it. If we're going to be a church that pursues one another, it's gonna come because our heart grows, not just for the ones that sit with us each week, but for those that live outside of these walls, who live all over, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, their social class, that we're gonna be people who engage them because we know they matter to God. But we pursue the not yet. God has a heart for them. Some things that I have found helpful in pursuing the not yet personally, and I'll just share this with you as I close, um, is changing how I think 
about people. And here's what I mean. In our world, our consumer world that we live in, uh, we often view people as products or problems. And here's how this shows up. What are the questions we ask of a product? What, what can it do for me? How much does it cost? How much will it help me? How long will it last? And if you listen to people in conversation, maybe even to yourself sometimes, we begin to treat people this way. We ask, I wonder what that person can do for me. I wonder how much it's going to cost me to be in a relationship with them. I wonder how long that relationship will last. Is it worth the investment? And if we don't treat people as products, we will often treat them as problems. And how do we treat problems? They're something to be fixed, something to be changed. And you'll hear this show up in conversation sometimes. How do I fix that person? And so our predominant thought when we are engaging with someone in a relationship is how do I fix them? How do I change them? And that gets us a little bit closer to thinking about them in more human and relational terms. But if we're going to reach the not yes, we have to shift to view people not as products or as problems, but as humans. And that word is important because the word human shares with it this biblical idea that it's from the earth. God has formed us from the dust of the earth. We are made in the image of God. How do we talk about humans? Well, we use words like patience and travelers and a number of other things, students. And I like patience in particular because Jesus speaks of us that way. Jesus says it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. What are the questions that we ask of patients? What's wrong? How do you feel? How long have you felt this way? What do you need? How can I help? Those are questions that build a bridge to people. When you engage in a relationship with someone who is not like you, maybe who's someone who has not yet begun to follow Jesus like you do, when you ask them how they feel, how long they felt that way, what's wrong, what help do they need, you begin to hear their story and God will provide opportunities for you to proclaim his good news into their life. Another picture that comes to mind, Jesus invites his disciples to follow him. And that picture of a, a follower, of a disciple, is one who travels with a rabbi. What questions do we ask of travelers? Where are you going? Where have you been? How long have you been traveling? Where do you want to go? And as we ask those questions of people, we begin to understand more of their story. And again, provide opportunities for us to proclaim the good news into their life. But if we're going to be people who reach the not yet, we're going to move from seeing people as products and problems to seeing people as humans, patients and travelers. And God begins to help us see them not first with anger, but rather with compassion that leads us to want to reach them to help them see who he is. And we can do all of that without compromising our faith. Will you and I be men and women who pursue one another by pursuing the not yets of the world that they might come to understand who Jesus is? If you are a not yet and you are here, I am glad that you are here. And, and I hope that you will come to ask questions so that we can help you see the God that loves you and that made you and has a purpose for your life. Together, we want to love you and help you see him.
Let's pray. God, would you give us your heart for the not yet? God, would you give us a resilience uh, and a steadfastness? God, and a strength as we strive to reach the not yet, that as we pursue you first, that we could engage those who don't yet know you without compromising our own faith and character as we strive to follow you. Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us discernment? Would you give us boldness? God, would you help us be a church who intentionally and lovingly, without compromising your truth, engages those who are not yet yours? And it's in your name we pray and trust in the name of Jesus.